This episode of BSD Now is finding a 24-year-old bug in ping by fuzzing the role of operating systems in IoT and also has an authentication gateway with SSH BSD tutorial for you. We covered a little bit of FreeBSD 12 for these notes and other news this week's episode of BSD Now. Episode 488, old ping bug, recorded on the 14th of December 2022. Way old by the time you hear this. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people, even in the new year. And if you want to support us, which we'll appreciate, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. Hope you had a great start in the new year. Why don't we give you a little bit of info about the BSDs again in the new year? And this is right into the headlines this week about fuzzying ping and finding a 24-year-old bug. Yeah, uh, so the article starts off with a prologue saying, you know, a couple of weeks ago, FreeBSD had a security fluctuation with their implementation of ping. Uh, as someone who has done a lot of work on ping in OpenBSD, this tickled my interest. So what about OpenBSD? So they start off with noting that the ping command itself is rather ancient. Uh, it was originally written by Mike Moose of the US Army Ballistic Research Laboratory in December of 1983. What we know today as ping started to become more recognizable in about 1986. Uh, and they show uh, a commit to the computer science research group uh, from Berkeley uh, from their old source repository. FreeBSD identified a stack overflow in the PR underscore pack function and I expected a lot of similarity between the BSDs. Um, so, but it turns out this stuff hasn't changed a lot since the CSRG days. So, you know, is this bug in every BSD? Uh, so step one, does this affect us? Turns out it does not. Uh, FreeBSD rewrote the PR pack function in 2019, citing some alignment issues. Um, now we can join the punters on the internet and point and laugh, but that's just rude and uncalled for and generally boring and pointless. Uh, so technically, the author here is on vacation and has uh, resolved to only do fun things this week, so let's have some fun. Step two, did we mess anything else up? Uh, FreeBSD had a problem with the PR pack function because this function handles data from the network. That data is untrusted and needs to be validated. Now it's a good time as any to check OpenBSD's implementation of PR pack. I wanted to try fuzzing, so I fired up AFL, the, uh, I think it's American Fuzzy Lop, uh, for a few years, but I've never got around to trying it, so I thought now would be a great time. So first, make sure you're not holding it wrong. So they installed AFL++ from the packages from uh, OpenBSD and glanced at the fuzzing libxml2 with AFL++ article. What you'll need here is a program to test, something with a known bug so that I can tell the fuzzing is working, an input file that does not trigger the bug, and then compile the program with AFL clang fast, uh, run AFL fuzz, and get the output. So they start with a simple test.c program here that tries to, you know, open a file, seek to it, rewind, uh, alloc a buffer, read, close the buffer, you know, do some stuff, memory, alloc memory, and so on. So this program has a trivial buffer overflow. It figures out how big a file is on disk, stores that in the f size variable, it allocates a buffer of this size, then reads the whole file into it, it interprets the first byte as the length of the data, and allocates a new buffer called debuff of that size. 
it skips the length byte and copies f size minus one bytes into the new buffer. Uh, so it trusts that the amount of data it reads from disk is the same as indicated by the length of the byte. Uh, while this might seem silly, this was a real world buffer overflow. <laughs> uh, here is a file where the input byte and file size agree, uh, creating files called, uh, or creating folders called in and out and placing test.txt in in. Don't forget the new line. And we have a b b b b b b b b b. And when we compile the program and run it, it more or less immediately finds a crash. Uh, the reproducers are put into the output directory under crashes. So that's a brief intro of how to use AFL to fuzz a program. So now we want to fuzz ping. At this point, we're facing a new problem. What does it mean to fuzz ping? Where are we going to sample input from, and how do we feed it into ping? From a high-level point of view, ping parses arguments. Uh, initializes a bunch of stuff and then enters an infinite loop of sending ICMP echo messages and waiting for replies and then parses and prints those replies. Parsing the reply is an interesting thing. Uh, the reply comes from the network and is untrusted. This is where things can go wrong. Uh, the parsing is handled in this PR underscore pack function. So that's what we should fuzz. So figuring out how to feed input into ping. We need some sample data. An ICMP message is binary data on the wire. Crafting it by hand is annoying. So let's just hack ping to dump the packet to disk. So they made uh, a small change here. And so now uh, ping will write out the packet to disk instead. Uh, so they have it if that. After building and installing our hacked version of ping, we can create sample input data from AFL with uh, the use here, uh, do a ping and output the packets into the indirectory uh, and use jot to basically try every size from zero to 255. Uh, so jot here is creating a stream of random numbers between zero and 255. We get the first four, concatenate them with a dot and cut on the trailing dot and voila, we have a bunch of random IP addresses. We then send a single ping and wait for one second. The ICMP reply is written to the indirectory. Uh, so now to fuzz prpack. At this point, I wrote a main function that accepts a file name as argument and reads it into a buffer and then ripped prpack out of ping and put it into the test program. Of course, compiling fails quite spectacularly at this point, so I added a bunch of the missing functions, uh, defines and global variables, and got everything you know, working. We don't have uh, the message header from received from, so we need to if out or if zero out some of that code. We also need to get rid of the validation of the uh, data packet using siphash, because the whole point is that the data does not validate and siphash would short circuit that. Oh yeah. And the thing is legacy IP only at this point. Uh, whereas I think the actual bug in FreeBSD's ping was B6 only. Anyway, uh, so they provide a link uh, to their little AFL underscore ping.c, which is basically the guts of the parsing function of ping separated into its own program so it can read packets from disk instead of the network. Uh, it is quite terrible. It would probably make more sense to copy all of ping and slap in a new main function and hook it up that way, but this is what they did. Anyway, at this point, I was 30 minutes in from reading about AFL for the first time until I was firing up AFL fuzz on this hacked up PR pack function. Not too bad. It was time for dinner, so I left the thing running. And as promised, it found a bug. I came back after dinner and AFL found zero crashes. That's disappointing. Or good, depending on how you look at it. Uh, but it found hangs. Uh, running AFL ping on one of the reproducers, it printed unknown option 20 forever. The problem is in this part of the code. And they have a snippet of code here where it's supposed to print unknown option 20 
and then it's supposed to go past that option and find the next. But CP is untrusted data, and if uh, CP at the offset of IP option O length is zero, we won't increase the uh, header length by one, and for the for loop would subtract one, uh, and then we'd never make any progress, and we'd just sit there forever printing out uh, the same message. So they made a little diff there, uh, and basically say that if uh, the output length is greater than zero, or uh, the output length minus one is less than the header length, then they do the right thing, otherwise they set the header to zero. Uh, it says, I foolishly tweaked the diff after collecting OKs, and of course the tweak was wrong. <laughs> so note to self, never do this. <laughs> so it's now spread over two different commits uh, to ping.c in OpenBSD. Uh, it turns out this bug was introduced April 3rd of 1998, uh, about 24 years ago, uh, in revision 1.30 of ping, and they're now committed revision 1.248 because of the way CPS uh, tracking works. So epilogue, so AFL uses files to feed data to programs to get them to crash or otherwise misbehave. I had wondered for a few years how I could use AFL for things that talk to the network, because that's what I mostly work on. In hindsight, it's quite obvious. You identify the main parsing function, wrap it in a new main function, and Bob's your uncle or Robert's your father uh, or nearest <laughs> uh, male relative. The main uh, takeaways here are if someone messes something up, go look if you messed up the same or similar. Two, AFL is pretty easy to use, even for network programs. And 30 minutes from reading about AFL for the first time, I found a bug in a real-world program that's pretty neat. It's a good start. It's a fuzzing world. Yeah. Um, there's some other interesting stuff. There's, uh, I think, a, a couple of different programs for feeding packet captures into uh, network programs to be able to test stuff like that. Um, and I could see how you could then maybe teach the fuzzer to mess with the captured packets so you're feeding bogus packets in uh but yeah this is a great example of how to use afl to test something uh and if everybody took one parser and went and did this uh we'd probably find lots of bugs and get them all fixed there's a couple of options to parallelize this over multiple cpus running multiple multiple instances but uh we refer to the afl man page for that Okay, we stay a little bit on the internet because we have a, another Clara Systems article for you, The Role of Operating Systems in IoT by our very own uh, Tom Jones. So uh, I'm reading this one, not he. Uh, over the last 20 years, we have changed how we talk about the technology that integrates into our daily lives. As it has become easier to embed computer processing into objects, we invented a category for objects that had the ability to communicate electronically, the Internet of Things, or IoT. So uh, the intro is about smart devices that have evolved rapidly and as embedding processes capable of communication into devices became simpler and cheaper, an enormous number of inexpensive devices began joining the Internet. The growth of IoT has been astounding and Internet-connected smart quote-unquote, versions of various consumer devices are now for sale at Ikea and other mainstream retailers, to everyone's horror. Um, with the internet coming to things in this way, we have come or become more accustomed to computing power in our homes, coming from devices most don't consider computers in the traditional sense. In the early days of Apple, Steve Jobs dreamed that computers would become like appliances, as easy to use as a coffee maker. In some ways, the computer has managed to become an appliance. But the Internet of Things consists of appliances that have become computers instead. And so they range from 
tiny environment sensors up to central hubs that can manage your home storage and run multiple appliances. And at the lower end of performance, devices can be little more than a Bluetooth, low energy chip chat and a sensor, enough processing power to set an alert about a door opening, but nowhere near enough to rival a general purpose computer. So what are the features that determine the size of IoT devices? Beyond the ability to observe the real world with sensors or cameras, there are two main features that determine the roles of an IoT device and its operating system, processing power and connectivity. So he goes into both. The processing power part is the computational power of a smart device is determined by the type of processor that it uses. Processors vary in clock speeds, RAM sizes, and buses for different peripherals. But the main decider is whether the processor is designed as a microcontroller or appliance class or application class. Uh, this distinction typically determines if there is a memory multiplexer unit, MMU. I thought this would go into memory management unit, this abbreviation, but that's okay. And other features required for general purpose operating systems. The smallest systems that we think of as IoT are simple devices that offer sensor data or provide simple outputs such as lights or speakers. The processor in these systems might be a simple small ARM core that has just enough power to control the Bluetooth chip. These devices might offer a service such as a sensor reading, I think smart bathroom scales, uh, mine always says only one person at a time, um, or an output like an LED, smart light bulb. Like these devices lack much in the way of onboard computing power, they are paired with more powerful controllers, such as dedicated hubs or mobile apps, which process and summarize this data and assist in uploading it to the cloud. And in connectivity, connectivity is the physical equipment and radio protocols the device has to communicate with other computers. IoT devices are connected through a huge range of different technologies. The most pedestrian of these is Wi-Fi, where the device uses the normal home network to connect to a local hub or to the internet directly. Smaller devices, such as Bluetooth low energy ones, uh, can use a local area network technology. A device will use Bluetooth to connect to a smartphone, or from there, an app running on that phone logs the device's data and may upload it to an internet hosted service without you knowing, uh, using the phone's own connectivity. Dedicated hubs uh, or hub devices may offer the same functionality either instead or in addition to a smartphone app. And there's a bit of a uh, section about Zigbee or Z-Wave that's also possible like in the Philips Hue lights to give you a little bit of dimming or coloring in your light. As well as LoRaWAN, he talks about that a little bit. But now the role of operating systems. The smallest IoT devices do not have a general purpose operating system. The platform runs a limited amount of code and it's not typically able to offer any further services. The majority of what the device can do is determined by a minimal firmware so the device can negotiate a Bluetooth connection and act as a speaker, but it's not able to repurpose to, or to be repurposed to be a data logger in the field. Its services are determined by the manufacturer in the factory. Whereas devices that have more recent microcontrollers are in the middle point because they can either run firmware on the bare metal or run small operating systems which are able to offer more services on the device. And that is, so he talks a little bit about the ESP8266 family of devices that have become very popular in this space and so uh, is a good platform to start with. Then there's a section about application processors which has the high end of hardware that is limited to real-time operating system uh, those overlap with the low end of hardware that is able to run full-featured operating systems. Many open-source RTOSs 
can run on fully featured application-sized processors and a choice between an RTOS and a full operating system, in this case, largely dependent upon the purpose of the device. And in the uh, bowls of the article, that's quite long, actually, quite, quite good to read, uh, he talks about uh, building your own, right, where you can actually build your own little IoT appliance operating system, or you use the ones from Ubuntu IoT Core, Windows 10 IoT Core, or FreeBSD that also has IoT in its uh, product, if you want to call it that. So he talks a bit about that because that's the main purpose of this article to introduce FreeBSD for the IoT space. And that's quite interesting to read. So the conclusion has the sheer breadth of IoT systems ranging from battery-powered environmental sensors up to high-definition cameras makes it hard to draw any single conclusion. The real needs of an IoT operating system are largely determined by the goals of the device it needs to support. Full operating systems, such as FreeBSD, are not common on the smallest of devices, but they aren't entirely unheard of. FreeBSD fits well into the application processor-sized IoT space and offers a common development and deployment platform that has been sparked, yeah, or proven uh, to work well in large environments. Cool. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Yeah, contributing even when he's not here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's just Tom. Uh, so next up, we have another article from Soline. Uh, Authentication gateway with SSH on OpenBSD. So they say, a neat feature in OpenBSD is a program called OffPF, an authentication gateway using SSH. Basically, it allows you to dynamically configure the local firewall PF by connecting or disconnecting into a user account over SSH, either to toggle an IP into a table or rules through a PF anchor. So this program is very useful for a number of use cases. Uh, you know, firewall rules dedicated to authenticated users. So once you log in, it says, hey, your IP is allowed to do things. Uh, enabling NAT to authenticated users, uh, using a different bandwidth queue for authenticated users. So, you know, if I log into the router with SSH, then it knows it's me and it says, hey, you can have more bandwidth. Or logging or not logging network packets based on the user. Of course, you can be creative and imagine many other use cases. This method is actually different from using a VPN. It doesn't have uh, encryption's extra cost, but is less secure in the sense that it only authenticates an IP address or username. So if you use it over the internet, uh, the triggered rule may also benefit other people who have the same IP address as you. However, it's much simpler to set up because users only have to share their public SSH key, while setting up a VPN is a whole another level of complexity. Although WireGuard makes it pretty easy. Anyway, their example setup. Uh, in the following example, we manage a small office's OpenBSD router, but you only want uh, Chloe's workstation to reach the internet uh, with NAT. We need to create her a dedicated account, set the shell to OffPF, deploy her SSH key, and configure PF. So we add a new user called Chloe and set her shell to user sbin OffPF. We set her SSH key in her authorized keys file, uh, and we set up the authpf.conf uh, file in etc authpf uh, and set up some rules. Now you can edit your pf.conf and use the default table named authpf underscore users. Following pf snippet, uh, we will only allow authenticated users to go through our NAT. So then they just have table authpf underscore users persist and match out on egress uh, inet from authpf users to any NAT to egress. Uh, so you reload the firewall, and when, Loie, uh, when Chloe will connect, she'll be able to go out through NAT. 
So by default, you won't be able to reach out of this network. But if you log into the router with SSH, it says, hey, that machine is trusted now, uh, and it will let that user go out and use the internet. So the program AuthPF is a very efficient tool for network administrators. And uh, with the use of PF anchors, you can really extend its potential if you want to. It's not really limited to just using tables. Uh, the man page uh, for AuthPF has a lot of extra information and uh, ideas on how you can customize it and make it do whatever you want to do. You can also make it block users. So it's possible to ban users for various reasons. You may want to block someone with a message asking them to reach out to the help desk. This can be done by creating a file uh, named after their username, like in the following example with Chloe. If we make etc authpf banned Chloe, this file will have text that will be displayed when the user tries to authenticate. You can also do greeting messages. You know, it's possible to write custom messages uh, that are displayed when they connect. This can be global or per user. Just write a message in the authpf.message file for a global one, or authpf slash user slash username slash authpf.message, and it'll be specific to that user. Mm, cool. That's quick to set up. I can see how that'd be very useful if you were trying to even just do something like, hey, when I'm out on the internet random places, if I SSH into my router, then that proves it's me. Now let me connect and, and use a bunch of the services from my home, uh, which normally wouldn't be allowed to just random people off the internet. Good to know about that. Just off PF it is. And you may have heard that FreeBSD 12.4 is out. So we have, of course, the announcement message here for you that lists a couple of highlights from the release. And this is the fifth release of the stable 12 branch. Fifth, because... 12, Zero, one, two, three, four. Yeah, of course, yeah. Doesn't start with one. <laughs> Computers. Yeah. All right, some of the highlights. The ENA kernel driver has been updated to 2.6.1, that is the Amazon Elastic uh, Network. Networking, yep. So that improves the performance of the network on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And if ePair driver now allows multiple cores to be used to process traffic to improve performance, also good. The Unbound Utilities has seen updates, as well as Telnet-D has been deprecated, finally. And the TCP dump utility now allows users to set a number of, or number on rules, actually, which will be exposed as part of the PF log header. OpenSSL updates and OpenSSH as well. LLVM got updates. DMA, which is the Dragonfly mail agent utility, has been updated to the snapshot of the 27th of January 2022. Oh, that's way old. That's last year's news by the time you listen to this. Um, or last year's yeah, release. Yeah, but it's uh, <laughs> getting closer and closer to DMA replacing SendMail. Yes. And that'll be a, a very fun day. Baptiste is behind that. Yeah, he is uh, on to that and we'll make that happen. The file utility has been updated as well to version 5.43 to identify what kind of files you have. And the libarchive library has also been updated to 3.6.0. There's much more under the hood, so check out the full release notes as well as some errata messages that may have popped up in the meantime and find all the information to download and uh, install the update if you're still on the 12. Yeah, but there was a, a couple of other very interesting updates uh, GrowFS will no longer give an error if the file system is already the size you're asking it to grow to. A uh, bunch of improvements to the CPU utility now that it supports uh, a bunch of more flags to be more similar to the GNU CP so that scripts will work either way. Uh, and just a bunch of bug fixes and POSIX compliance fixes there. Uh, 
bunch of improvements to NFSv 4.1 slash 4.2 and PNFS servers that went in. Uh, like we talked about that other stuff, a uh, bunch more networking and kernel changes. The hardware performance counters got updated with IDs added for Intel, you know, Comet Lake, Ice Lake, Tiger Lake, Rocket Lake, etc. cetera. Uh, also some improvements to the hardware performance counters for ARM. Uh, lots of other stuff. Uh, PF uh, has some additional fixes that went in, which is very helpful. And for the people who still miss Telnet-D, they can install it from ports, but it's not part of the base system anymore. Just for those who are right. wondering. Yeah, a bunch of improvements to various uh, network drivers uh, and also disk controllers. The LSI MPR uh, no longer panics during firmware updates, uh, and the drivers are just more robust uh, device mapping implementation. Uh, also, PFSync got a bunch of improvements. So if you're syncing your firewall state between two machines, that's also improved. Thanks to Netgate for that. Uh, and NVIDIA sponsored some work on uh, USB audio and MIDI devices. Thanks to Hans Petter for that. Uh, and a bunch of fixes for FuseFS have also been merged. Oh, I can see some good use cases for that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's basically the last release of the 12 branch, uh, buying you a bit of time uh, to consider getting to 13 or 14. But uh, overall, a nice roll-up release to uh, keep those machines chugging along. Well done, everyone involved in the uh, engineering of this release and the company supporting that in various ways. ESD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated in them so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts those with your local private key, which never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone would have been able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they cannot access it because it's still encrypted. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find some errors in the code. And with clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Okay, time for the itsy bitsy beastie bitsy. Uh, oh, gee, this will haunt me for a while. And the first thing is a Vagrant FreeBSD box builder update. So that has been uh, highlighted once in a, in a previous episode, but we found that punct.de was busy updating that. And Patrick uh, Hausen is, um, well, has posted this and I found it on Twitter. So I thought, why not give people the update? Yeah. So this is a, a Vagrant project to generate FreeBSD based Vagrant boxes with either ZFS or UFS. So you can just clone this. Go into it, do vagrant up, vagrant halt, run the package thing, and you'll end up with packages. You can specify uh, which box to use for the building, how many cores to use, what FreeBSD version to use, what packages you want to install by default, uh, how big to make the hard drive, how big to make the swap, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it works nicely using uh, VirtualBox or uh, whatever other way you want to set it up. And then you can also, on subsequent runs of vagrant provision, 
uh, runs the compile stage is skipped uh, if there are no changes to the etc or user source updating file. Uh, when making changes, shut down via Vagrant Halt before uh, each new Vagrant provision change. Uh, so it's been updated, so it supports newer versions of FreeBSD. Uh, it builds the projects, uh, and this box now also uh, deals with merging config files as well. Oh yeah, which is a deal when people want to have their old uh, configuration back in the new version. Yeah, so if you're used to using Vagrant to build it, uh, or build your images, that works pretty well. Uh, I prefer Pudra image, but having something that fits into your existing workflow can be really nice. So thank you for Patrick and everybody else that worked on this for making it happen. Always good to have choices. And uh, oh, speaking of choices, why not look at LibreSSL 3.7.0, which has been released. And um, huh, this is a contribution by Peter Adam Henstein to the Undeadly Org message uh, collection for OpenBSD. And uh, reads a new development release of LibreSSL is out and should be arriving on a mirror near you by the time you uh, listen to this. It's there. And uh, Brent Cook has an announcement or announced this, which goes like the following We have released LibreSSL 3.7.0, which will bring. Which with one more time, which will be arriving in the LibreSSL directory of your local OpenBSD mirror soon. This is a development release from the 3.7x branch, which will eventually ship with OpenBSD 7.3. It includes a bunch of changes, uh, internal improvements, for example, like uh, the remove of the dependency on system time GM and GM time by replacing traditional Julian date conversion with POSIX epoch second date conversion. For boring SSL. They cleaned out old and unused BN code dealings with primes, start rewriting uh, the name constraint code using CVS, and a bunch of stuff uh, about uh, HMAC private key removal support, uh, or yeah, rework DSA signing and verifying internals. So, all good uh, cleanups there. There were some compatibility changes as well. Uh, BioRead and BioWrite now behave more closely to OpenSSL3 in various corner cases. More work is needed here. Okay. Bug fixes are also quite a list. Always good to have those. Uh, some leaks are avoided and uh, signed overflows and sec faults. All these things are not there anymore. Documentation improvements include numerous improvements in addition for ASM1, Bio, BN, and X509. And the BN documentation is now considered to be complete. Testing and proactive security is done as well. As always, new test coverage is added as bugs are fixed and subsystems are cleaned up. Many old tests are rewritten and cleaned and extended. New features also. They added an ED25519 support, both as a primitive and via OpenSSL's EVP interfaces. And the X25519 is now also supported via EVP. And OpenSSL 1.1 raw public and private key API is available with support for EVP PK EV25519, EVP PK HMAC, and EVP PK X25519. Poly 1305 is not currently supported via this interface. So, note about that. And of course, the LibreSSL project continues improving the code base to reflect modern, safe programming practices. They welcome feedback and improvements from the broader community, thanks to all the contributors who helped make that release possible. Nothing to add there. Good work. Yep. We also have OpenSense 22.7.9 with their quick release. 
which includes the previously security advisory for the ping utility and some updates for Suricata. And DNS block lists uh, have been rewritten in Python and a couple of other cool additions. So they fixed their internal uh, certificate revocation list check, uh, fixed some things that came up from the Coverity scans, a um, couple other fixes, updates to the latest versions of PHP 8.0, SQLite, Suricata, etc. And of course, the, the ping fix that we talked about. Uh, also fixed an errata in the, a class of Intel 10 gigabit NICs. Okay. Also good to know. Next up, we have another one uh, from OpenBSD. The BIOS memory map in VMD, their hypervisor, has been rewritten or is being rewritten. Uh, rewritten version of the BIOS memory map handling uh, could soon appear in Dash Current in a recent post on the tech mailing list and supplemented by an accompanying post on the ports list since the change touches CBIOS. Uh, Dave Vutilla describes the changes and the motivations for changing them. In short, this nukes some old hacks we've been carrying uh, to communicate things like the less than, or sorry, greater than four gigabytes of memory in CBIOS via CMOS. It assumes VMD properly builds and conveys a BIOS E820 memory map via the FW under CFG API. Uh, follow the links in the messages for the full story, test the patches if you feel like it. While the ETA of the upcoming commit is not yet certain, expect the change to go in pretty, pretty soon. Mm -hmm. Okay. Also interesting, OpenBSD's hypervisor. So yeah, uh, any plans for the new year now that we're kind of at the end of this episode in the BSD space? Um, I don't know, just more BSD. Going to conferences again? <laughs> yes, that'll be great. Right? Nice. Yeah, so we should definitely mention again our conferences that are announced yet, well, to this point. Uh, that's Asia BSDCon. They have their call for papers out, but it's soon closing. Maybe it's already closed by the time you listen to this. And BSD Can has joined the uh, conference uh, reign of the rule of the land uh, with their conference happening in May this or next year. Well, again, this year, 2023, by the time you listen to this. The uh, call for paper is still out, but also closing shortly. So if you want to submit a talk or a tutorial for the conference, do that. And don't forget to, if you didn't want to submit something, then attend at least. That's already quite amazing to meet the BSD people, no matter which BSD it is from, and to listen to the talks and you know get the BSD spirit. I can't wait. That's my goal for, the, for that year. Uh, to get to more BSD conferences again. Of course, with all the protections and mask mandates that may be out by that time. And so um, always be careful, but better than having just video conferences all the time. Uh, I should ask Tom the same next time I record with him so that you get his perspective as well. But I'm thinking he has a similar positive outlooks. If you want to uh, mention your your plans maybe for the BSD conferences or any BSD projects that you're undertaking this year, then why not send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv so we can cover them here. Or if you have something already, then we could do a call for testing maybe, or at least inform the general BSD public about it so that uh, you get a couple of interesting eyes looking at either code or final product for testing, things like that. Yeah, it's definitely exciting and of course, we will be back with another recording next week for you. 